0: Well, we are back in our Come and See series this morning. So if you have a Bible, whether on your phone or if you, you know, have one of these old school paper ones, I'd encourage you to open up to John chapter 1 and that's kind of where we'll, we'll camp eventually this morning. Uh, last week we, we kicked off this series and we looked really at two passages, uh, the first couple verses but also one right at the end. Uh, see, one of the things we have to do whenever we come to a text in the Bible is we need to understand who's writing, why are they writing, what kind of writing is it even, and and what does it look like? So John is really helpful in this in that he kind of wraps up his letter saying, okay, you've tracked with me for this long, here was the point. And so we looked at John 20, verse 30 and 31, and in verse 31, John says that these things are written. We could tell all kinds of other stories of what Jesus did, all kinds of signs and miracles that Jesus did, but these ones I've distilled down into this gospel, into this biography of Jesus, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love this. He tells us exactly why he's writing. He says, there's so much more. We we could fill all the books and all the libraries of the things Jesus has done. However, here's the stories that I think are most important from the three years that I walked with Jesus. See, he wrote not just to tell us about Jesus, but also to, to clarify for us who Jesus is. The way he writes, the, the things John records in his Gospels are, are often a little bit different. They have a bit of a different focus than the other three Gospels we have. And, and one of the reasons for this is that he's writing a little bit later in history than the other three. We, we think he wrote this around the year uh, 90 or so. But he's writing from the perspective of, of after the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit has also come. And so that shapes the stories a little bit too. Again, because he's writing later, John is very likely aware of all the other gospels that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he's seeing how the church has been reading them and applying them, and yet he wants to clarify a few things, and he wants to come from this spiritual perspective. Theologian Andreas Kostenberger says this, it's like John assumed the historical facts that have already been set out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He doesn't really deal with those as much, John doesn't. But John, he says, deepens the reader's understanding of the significance of Jesus' life and work by focusing on a small number of pivotal items such as the identity of Jesus, the necessity of faith, and the universal scope of his redemptive work. In other words, John is an interpretive account that brings out the the spiritual significance of the events and teachings that this gospel features. And so what we have in the book of John, in the gospel of John, is this this beautiful mix of theology, the study of God, grounded in history and detailing how God has acted to bring about his rescue mission for all of humankind. Now as we said last week, I'll remind us this week, as we go through this book, you're going to continually see this kind of cycle emerge where we're called to see Jesus for who he is. And as we see Jesus for who he is, we want to receive all that he has done for us. And as we see and receive, we will then believe more and more in him, which leads us to real abundant life. And so just, again, as a really quick bit of a recap, what is John asking us to believe? He's not asking us to believe that Jesus was a good person that he was an eloquent speaker, that he was a good teacher or a wise philosopher. But John says, you need to believe. I've given you these things so you can believe that he is the Christ. Jesus is the Old Testament promise keeper and he is the son of God. As one writer says, we need to acknowledge as the one called Messiah, but we need to believe that Jesus is the one who would fulfill all the promises God had made to his people. And so that's what we're setting out to do in this series. This is an an invitation to come and see Jesus as the Messiah, as the promise keeper, uh, the one who came to do everything God promised would do. And we want to see, again, who he is and what he's done and what that means for us and how we live in light of that. This morning, we're going to look really quickly, I guess, at the prologue, the first 18 verses. We looked at the first five last week, so I'm going to s- sort of skim through those quick, but uh, let me read this first section for us, John chapter 1, 1 to 18. Let me also mention, if you want to take along notes, there's a page on our website, uh, trinitycanmore.com notes, that has a bunch of the key points that are in the slides and an area to take notes and email them to yourself later, so you may want to check that out. But let's read together, John 1, 1 to 18. he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. From the fullness of all that we've received We've received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but, but He has made Him known. Now, these words, this passage, some have just described them as the most significant words ever penned. There's so much here in just 18 verses. They really, they, again, they, they fuse theology and history together as, as John sets the stage for what he's about to say. And he, he lays out, here's where we're going to go for the next 20 chapters or so. Within these verses, we are introduced to, to many of the central themes of the gospel. And watch for these as we continue to read through weeks to come. He talks about life and light and witness, and truth, as in the genuine, real, ultimate truth. And he talks about the world, and he talks about glory. Last week in verses 1 to 5, we saw, again, quickly, the answer to two questions. Who is Jesus, and why did he come? John describes Jesus as the Word, the, the clearest revelation of the character and nature of God, since Jesus is God himself. And these first five verses, they show us how the Word who was with God in the very beginning came into time, came into history, so that the glory and grace of God would be uniquely and perfectly disclosed to creation. Matt Carter helpfully says this, Jesus shares his nature and being with God. That's what John means when he says the Word was God. He's of the same character and quality of God in verse 1. Everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus Christ. This is, begins our understanding of the Trinity, the understanding that there is one God, but that one God exists in three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 1, we find a precisely worded statement about Jesus that leads us to only one conclusion, Jesus Christ is God. And we read in verses 4 and 5 that he came for two reasons, to bring light and life. This life that he brings is to to draw us back from our separation from God. Us as humans are separated from God. Paul later writes to the church in in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, listen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins the ways you once watched. You, you followed the way of the world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead in these things. But God, verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which God loved us, even when we were dead and separated from him, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. So Jesus came to bring life in these days and forever. He also came as the light that would shine in the darkness, and we read that the darkness would not overcome it. We did a little grammar lesson and said that, that the light will shine is a continual action, it's a continual verb, and that the darkness would not be able to overcome it. It did not overcome it. That's a finished action. So the light is shining no matter what. And we're going to, again, see this light imagery come up again and again and again through this gospel. But as we get to verse 6, the author's attention turns for a moment from Jesus to a man called John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist today. And just as a note, whenever John is named in the gospel, it's this John. The author, John the Evangelist, never names himself. So whenever you read John, he's talking about John the Baptist. It'd be nice if they had different names, but that's what we've got, I guess, right? Verse 6, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Again, look, John the Baptist also has a purpose. He also has a mission. He came to bear witness. He came to testify that all might believe in Jesus. Now, the the key word in this description of John is witness. What does a witness do? Think about that. What, What does a witness do? If you picture a courtroom setting, what's the goal of a witness? Feel free to, you know, help me out here. To testify? Okay. To tell the truth? Yeah. To tell of what they saw. saw. You're right. The witnesses, they're asked for specific information. And so if John is a witness that's come to bear witness to Jesus, you and I in that courtroom picture are like the jury, and we need to make a decision about the information we've been presented with. John came and talked. John the evangelist wrote his gospel. We have to decide how we are going to respond to that. And so that's what John was doing in the first days. He was testifying to the light so that people would believe in Jesus. And you and I, we have to do the exact same thing 2,000 years later. We are going to be presented through this biography, through the Gospel of John, a testimony, information about the light. And so our challenge is how will we respond to this testimony? Continuing on, Jesus came as light, but there was a problem. We read about it in verses 9 and 10. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. This again throws back to Jesus was a part, an active part of creation, yet the world did not know him. As one writer notes, Jesus made our eyes, but we refused to see his glory. He made our ears, yet we refused to listen to his words. He made our hands, yet we refused to bow before him. See, Jesus or John the Baptist, he does his job. He's not the light. He makes that clear. I'm not the one. I'm pointing you to someone after me. All he can do is reflect the light of Christ and and point people to him. A little bit later in chapter 5, Jesus calls John a, a burning and shining lamp. He says John did what he was supposed to do. He reflected light. He was not the light. He did a great job of pointing people to me. And so John's life pointed others to the true life. And so John came to to call people to a decision. He came as well to us. He's speaking to us through our our Bibles right now, and we need to make a life-defining decision about Jesus. Remember, as we talked about last week, to to believe is not just uh, to give intellectual assent. It's not just to say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'll file that on the shelf with what I believe about, you know, the lunch I'm going to have, the road to get home, and all these other things. But believe what John is talking about here. This is entrusting all that you are to Jesus. We used the example of a suspension bridge last week, right? I can look at a suspension bridge and say, yeah, I think that that should hold me. I believe it will hold me. But until I step out onto that wiggly cable, I'm not really believing in it. And so you and I, we really have two choices. Either we accept Jesus or we reject Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, John says, He, the light, Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Remember, John is is, is setting Jesus up as the promise keeper, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus stepped into a time in history when, when the expectation of the Messiah's arrival was high. People were looking for him. They were expecting this Christ to come and yet he was rejected by the Jews. If we reject Jesus we're saying that he's not the Christ. We're saying that he is not God, that he is not the promise keeper. And either we're waiting for someone else or we're saying this whole idea is rubbish and we're not waiting for anyone else at all. But if we, if we look at the world, if we look at all the, the varying worldviews around us and how they, they answer the biggest questions of life, is there a better offer? Is there a better answer offered than what's found in the Bible through the person of Jesus? That's what we have to wrestle with. And I don't believe there is. Jesus is the light that came into the darkness. Jesus is the one who came to rescue us for our sin and our rebellion. Tim Keller says, which actually uh, connects well with the song we sang, You and I Were Made to Worship, he says, either you will worship God or you will worship something else. There's there's not an alternative to worshiping. Either you will look to God for your significance and your security, or you will look to something else, even if that something else is just your own abilities. And so we we read here that Jesus was rejected by many of his own those 2,000 years ago. But some turned, we read, and some believed and some received him. They'd acknowledged that they were in darkness and they needed the light and Jesus was the light. They believed in his name. Again, this key term in in John's gospel, believe, is used about a hundred times. And by believing, they stepped out and they believed in him completely. And what what does that look like? Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who received the light, all who, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. Now, Many of those who, who study literature and, and grammar and that sort of thing uh, note that the structure of these verses from 1 to 18 are, are a bit of a chiasm, which is a term meaning that, that the points at the beginning line up with the points at the end, and everything kind of funnels you down to one central point that the section is really saying this is the most important thing that all these other points feed into. And they would say that this verse is the one. Verse 12 is the one. Here's the point of the prologue. Here's the scene for the whole book. But all who did receive him, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Last week, again, we talked briefly about uh, adoption, so let me just quickly reiterate. Believing and, and receiving, this isn't just a transaction we make with Jesus like we do with Amazon. We say, okay, here's my, here's my credit card, Amazon drops off the package, Done. But believing in Jesus changes everything. When we we receive and we believe, our identity changes. We're adopted into the family of God. We're called children of God. We're, We're given this right by Jesus. We don't earn it. My great intellectual ability to give my assent to Jesus is worth nothing. Jesus gives us this right. We do not deserve it apart from him. And so our identity changes as we receive and believe. We're no longer primarily defined by uh, our looks, our jobs, our families, our education, our influence, our relationships, or our desires, but instead our worth comes from our status as children of God. Now there's some really important words in this passage, but this might be the most important. See, the gospel, the message of Jesus isn't just five points to help you have a better life, to live your best life now. It's not believe these right things and everything will go well with you and you know, you'll get the raise at work and you'll get the new whatever else you want. But the gospel is a call to, through the work of Jesus, a complete change of identity. It calls us to find our, our meaning, our purpose, our value, our calling, everything about who we are in Jesus. And what he says about us. Not what our culture says about us. Not what our teachers say about us. Not what our family or partners or anyone else says about us. But because of the work of Jesus, we who were once spiritually separated from God are now brought into the family of God. We who were dead in our sin, lost in darkness, are now made alive in Christ and we share in his inheritance. Now, these verses may not give all the answers of how we get there and what that all looks like, but John's going to continue to unpack this. Remember, this is an introduction. And this new birth is a, is a big theme of chapter 3, which we're going to get to uh, someday. Our last section for this morning, verse 14 to 18. Look at verse 14. Chances are you've heard this one before. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if what we've already read in these verses is is kind of mind-blowing, and for me this week, one of the things I had to camp on was that for all who believe have been called children of God. My goodness, what does that look like? Somehow this gets even further. The word, the one John calls the word, the the very self-expression of God himself, God's ultimate self-disclosure took on flesh, put on meat, like you and I have, he became human and dwelt among us. No other God has done this. This is so radically different from every other worldview. In other religions, they either say that the gods are up somewhere off, fighting too busy to be concerned about us, or they're they're so much greater than us that we have to try and earn an audience with them by our good works, by doing good things, by, by giving more, by telling people about them, all these things that are efforts and just strive to appease them so we can have an audience with them. Or the worldviews might say that, you know what, Just, just do the best you can with the hope that someday you'll reach some sense of enlightenment. Or maybe hope that you do enough good in this life that you come back in the next one with a better situation. But the God of the Bible came put on flesh and dwelt among his people. The word here is literally tabernacled among us. If you know your Old Testament, do you remember what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament? It was the tent where God came and lived among the camp of his people. And so this verse can rightly be translated, God came and set up his tent in our camp. Or perhaps a more modern, I don't live in a tent many nights, three or four a season is enough for me. And so the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. God became one of us. This truth, this is what we call in the Christian church, the incarnation. And this is a a truth that we can hold even if we can't fully understand all the implications of what it means. See, because we believe that Jesus always existed. And John told us that in verse 1. And yet he does also have a definite point of entry into human history. He was born as a baby, verse 14. So Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Paul also affirms this later for us in Colossians 2.9 where he says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwelled bodily in Christ. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. There's at least three reasons why Jesus did this that we'll look at quick here. Uh, If Jesus had not become man, had not become human like us, he could not be tempted. Without becoming like us in every way, Jesus would not have been able to experience temptation. But because he did, we now have an advocate. We have an, an intermediary between us and God who knows exactly what we're going through who knows exactly how it feels to be tempted by the same things, probably in different ways. I don't think in the first century they were tempted by spending time on their smartphones. However, the same pull for our times and our hearts and affections, Jesus can sympathize with those. And he can show us that by his power, we can have victory over sin and temptation through his strength. Second, if Jesus didn't become a man, he could not be our example because he was like us in every way, we can look to him for how we should respond in pretty much every situation. One of the authors I follow online, Kerry Newhoff, wrote a blog this week that said, you know what? Christians should be the best in the world at handling conflict because we have Jesus, and Jesus told us exactly how to do that. Spoiler alert: Christians are not the best in the world at handling conflict in general, or at times maybe, but we could be, because we have Jesus as our example. And third, if Jesus did not become man, he could not die. We can never look at these verses and see Jesus coming in and, and interrupting or entering history without looking ahead to, you know, chapter 20, 19 and 20 and consider his death on the cross. J.I. Packer, who is maybe one of the greatest theologians of our day, who just passed away this last year, says this. The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps that led that sequence of steps down that led the son of god to the cross in calvary we do not understand it until we see it in this context the taking of of manhood by the son is set before us as a way which shows us how we should ever view it not simply as a marvel of nature but as a wonder of grace jesus coming and taking on flesh and moving into the neighborhood is amazing because of, of why he did that so that he could die for our sins that was his purpose Paul again in 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that though he was rich, though he had everything in heaven, for your sake and my sake he became poor, so that you and I in our poverty might become rich through his works. Finally, in the conclusion of this prologue, we see John setting up how Jesus will be presented as the promise keeper, the one who fulfilled all the promises of God. Again, fourteen to eighteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, "This was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks before me, because he was uh, he who comes after me. Excuse me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For the f- from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but he has made him known. And so John's, again, setting up what's to come here. And we see Jesus set up as the new and better tabernacle. We talked about this already, but just as God came to meet with Israel in the tabernacle, as as in that place God met with Moses, we read in the Old Testament, and they talked face to face. And Moses, as one speaks to a friend, Jesus came to meet man face to face. Worship that was once centered around the tabernacle and then the temple in Jerusalem is now centered around Jesus, the new and better tabernacle. We see Jesus as the glory of God too. This idea is is tied to the tabernacle as well. Remember in the Old Testament, as as Israel marched through the wilderness, they were led by the glory of God, a a pillar of cloud in the day and fire at night. And that cloud and fire rested on the tabernacle. It was in the camp. And so when the Jews looked at the tabernacle, they could see a, a visible manifestation. They could see the glory, the excellence of God there. But that's what we get in Jesus. That's what John's telling us in verse 14. When when Jesus came and moved into our neighborhood, we too can see in him the fullness and the glory of God. We're going to see Jesus and how he related to the prophets as well. Just as as John says that kind of quote about John the Baptist saying, the one who uh, came after me, who ranks before me because he was before me, he's saying again for us that Jesus has existed eternally as God. And so John the Baptist, who's testifying in these verses, is considered one of the last or the last of the Old Testament prophets. God spoke through his prophets as we read at the start of the service from Hebrews chapter 1. That's how he communicated often was through the prophets of the people. And, And John is the last of that style of prophet. He's in the line of Jeremiah and Isaiah and them. John's role was to prepare people for the coming Messiah. The difference between John and and Isaiah and Jeremiah is John, after centuries and centuries, had the ability to say, there he is. The one we've been talking about for hundreds and thousands of years, there he is. Finally, Jesus, or second to finally, I guess, Jesus in the law. We read that Jesus is the one who brings grace upon grace in verses 16 and 17. See, in, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, when, when the people received the law through Moses, it, it too was a grace. You remember Exodus 22, God says, listen, I have redeemed you. I've rescued you from slavery. Here's how we live now in light of that. It was a grace to show how, how to live in response and obedience to the God who loves them. And that was, that's, that's Jesus too. It always pointed to him. He comes to say, okay, listen, I've done all these things for you. I came, I put on flesh, I moved into your neighborhood, I gave up my riches for your poverty so that you could have my richness. Here's how you live in light of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for you on a cross to take care of your sin. Here's how you live. Again, the, the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was always to show people where they were walking away from God's grace and bring them back. But it always pointed to Jesus. As so one writer says, the grace of the law was that it did point to Jesus, but how much more grace was given when Jesus came? The grace of God was seen in the law everywhere in the shadow of, the, everywhere the shadow of Jesus Christ fell, whether it was the Passover hinting at Jesus, whether it was the temple sacrifices hinting towards Jesus' sacrifice. But when Jesus came, those shadows, those, those hints, those prefigurings no longer mattered. The light of Jesus Christ revealed completely, completely what those shadows had only showed us in part. So Jesus is a new and better, perfect law. Finally, we see this relationship between Jesus and the Father in verse 18. John writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Those, those closing words of, of he made him known or, or he has revealed him carry with it the idea that the, the whole story has now been told everything that started in Genesis 3 when, when, when the promise was, you know, the, the, you'll be, you know, there was one of the seed of the woman will rescue you. This, this hint, this prefiguring of a Messiah, this story has now been told. Here's Jesus. He's the finisher of it. And so we've got this picture of Jesus with the Father and Jesus came to, to complete the story, to share the whole story of God's perfect plan of redemption. What Jesus is doing is not new, but he's finishing it. It's all fully explained through him. As we, as we wrap up, again, these verses are so significant. We could spend probably months digging into each one of these because they lay the foundation for all that John's going to do through the rest of his gospel. And so as we continue to walk through the rest of chapter 1 and 2 and 3, all the way through, we're going to hear this again. We're going to hear this prologue again. But more than that, the, these Verses also remind us of the promises that began in the book of Genesis carry all the way through the Old Testament and are finally coming true in Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. He is the answer to humankind's need for a Savior. He is God's grace in human form. And he is the bridge between undeserving human and completely holy God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words. I pray that you would continue to speak to us through these verses as, as we kind of wrestle with them and, and read them and mull them over. And, and I pray that you would, uh, you know, make maybe one or two stand out, whatever's, you know, what we need most in this day and then tomorrow maybe something else. Maybe today what we really needed to hear was that, that all who received him, he gave the right to be children of God. And our identity can be found in you, an identity that won't crumble when the markets crash or when we're betrayed by friends or when a relationship breaks up or when uh, whatever else happens. Maybe we need to be reminded that, Jesus, you became flesh and dwelt among us. You moved into the neighborhood. You are here. And we can, we can look to you to see the, the nature and character of God. And, and Jesus, forgive us when we have misrepresented you those of us who call ourselves Christians, go the other way. We, we, we see in you the nature of God, the character of God, and we still go our own way. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would draw us back to you so that our identity would be found in you, that our life would be found in you, that we would find light and life as you promise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.